This is Surviving Ministry, conversations designed to help you last longer and grow stronger in ministry. I'm your host, Seth Stevens. And as we pour out to him, it's almost like we're laying it all on the table, and that's when he can work in us. I could do the work, and I could do it well, and Yet it wasn't giving me life. It was draining me. It wasn't something that I felt like, God, this is what I'm meant to be doing. Being scared to death is a great place to be. You're still not sufficient to do it. You still have got to be dependent on Him. Today we are going to be talking with Cricket Keith about what to do when your prayer life is dry, how to come up with good questions for a Bible study, how seeing somebody who was alive and unashamed of Christ changed her life, transitions in and out of full-time ministry, challenges in women's ministry, what sustains and excites her in ministry, and being single in ministry, as well as how to finish well, and much, much more. Here we go. I'm here with uh, Cricket Keith. Uh, She is Women's Ministry Director at First Evangelical Church. I have known Cricket for how long? You came here 16 years ago? I came here in 2005, so 14 years ago. 14 years ago. I'm starting my 15th year. All right. So we've known each other a while. Known each other a a little while. She is somebody whose office I sneak into sometimes (laughs) to ask advice or input on uh, certain topics or issues. She's uh, really built up a great uh, women's ministry here at First Event. She's also just put out a, a book. Uh, Cricket, do you want to tell us a little about the uh, title of the book and what inspired you to uh, write this book? Yes. Uh, the name of the book is called On Bended Knee, Praying Like Prophets, Warriors, and Kings. And it's a Bible study on prayer. And I wrote it years ago, back in 2010 for my women's ministry, but it was out of a need in my own life because I was busy in the ministry. I was... Wait, there's busyness in ministry? You wouldn't know what that is, <laughs> would you? No, I, I don't know <laughs> you're what you're never talking about. I can't busy. relate to that. You're never busy in the ministry. <laughs> uh, you, you know, you feel like you're, you're running sometimes. You've got so many things on your plate. Plus, to add that, I had a mom who we had just moved up here to Memphis and had put in assisted living, and I was the sole caregiver, and I felt So you're the sole caregiver for your mom? Yes. She was living in your house? No, she was living in assisted living. Okay, but But you have to take care of all the paperwork. And getting those phone calls saying, your mom just Uh, fell, and she's in the ER. Can you meet us there? Yeah. So I was at a place in my life that my prayers, I was meeting with God. Mm -hmm. I was praying but it was more like saying words. It was more like a ritual I was going through, just going through the motions. And I felt like my prayer life had just become flat. It just became, just wrote words. I was going through the motions. And so I prayed and said, God, something's wrong here. And my prayers just, I feel like I'm not connecting with you in my time of prayer. And so what can I do to change that? And he led me to look at prayers in the Bible of men and women And as I did that, I began to write this Bible study for my women, and it changed the way I pray as I looked at how did they approach God? What was the situation they were going through? Um, How did they pray? How did God work in their lives? 
and in their situation through prayer. And so it's really, and now that I've just finished going through this book again, yeah, it's changing me again in the way I pray. That's encouraging. Now, you mentioned that you kind of noticed that your your prayer life, you weren't connecting with God mm-hmm. in a way or to an extent that you used to. Um, you know, one of the things I worry about is that people never get close enough to God to realize when there was, uh, it, when there starts to be distance. Was there mm-hmm. anything that kind of made you realize, hey, my prayer life used to be like this, now mm-hmm. it's like this. How can how can I get it back? Were there any particulars or was it just kind of a, a vague feeling? I think it was because in the past, my, my time with him was so, I felt like I was meeting with him and I would come away from my time of prayer feeling strengthened. I mean, I felt like I had met with him and had just really communicated and fellowshiped with him. When I felt like it was dry and it wasn't doing well is where I felt like, I'm just saying words. Mm -hmm. I could be saying words to the ceiling. And I would come away not feeling strengthened. I was just kind of rushing through. It's like, God, I got to do this, this, and this. Okay, I got to go. And I was out the door. So it was more of that sense of, I'm coming away from my quiet time, but I don't feel like I've met with him. Mm-hmm. I've just gone through the motions. That was the real key. And instead of being energized, you felt kind of drained yes. or just like or just nothing. Nothing. Like yeah. I just talked to the wall and mm-hmm. I knew that he hadn't gone anywhere and I was meeting with him, but it was that I wasn't approaching him as God. I was just kind of going through the motions and that's where it had really become more of a check off my to-do list knowing I needed to do this. I'm in ministry. I'm caring for my mom, but I was so worn out and uh, just trying to survive and through these prayers though. And I, I can remember times taking my mom or meeting my mom at the ER in the middle of the night, getting home at 2 a.m. and sitting down with God's word and just praying through a psalm to strengthen me. And it, and it began, that my prayer life began to change as I did that. You know, as you were you know, going through this study to revitalize your own prayer life and and looking at these various prayers. Um, Was there any one moment or any one thing that kind of, um, or or what thing do you think made the biggest difference in being able to reconnect with God and feel like your prayer life was being revitalized again? I think it was by looking at their prayers And even though they were in hard situations, like you look at Job, you look at Hannah, uh, even David and Nehemiah, all of them, and realizing that their situation drew them to God because they knew he was the only answer. He was the only thing that would get them through what they were going through. And I think as I read their, their, just their lives and thinking, gosh, their situation was a lot harder than mine. Yeah. And so it, it was really a, a looking at how did they approach God. And what I saw was that they didn't hold back from what they felt. They were honest. It's like, God, I don't understand. Or, God, I need this. Or, I, I'm asking you to give me this son. Or, God, why are these things happening? Or, God, my heart is broken over this. So they poured it out. And that's what I learned to do was instead of holding back, was being honest with God and saying, God, I am angry right now, or God, I don't understand where you are. I've even at times said, God, are you trying to kill me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, 
You know, one of the things I think of is like, oftentimes when we pray, I think there's this sense like, um, I've got to protect God from who I really am and what mm -hmm. I really feel. Mm -hmm. And what you're talking about is really the opposite of saying, what, be real. Lord, I, you know, here, here I am, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And, you know, this is me, you right. know, respond to it, correct me, change me, mold me, answer me, you know, but, but this is what's going on inside of me. Right. And I, I, th I think like, I, I think there, there's some people where there's just kind of a fear and hesitancy of like, Oh God can't handle this. And you think he's the creator of the universe. Like yes. he, he can, he, he can handle your anger and frustration. And as we pour out to him, it's almost like we're laying it all on the table, and that's when he can work in us. Mm -hmm. I, I'll be honest. There were times I would drive home from the nursing home at the end of the day in tears because of watching my mom in a state that I just thought, God, why will you not take her home? She wants to go home. Why won't you take her home? And I yeah. would get in the car and say, I need a moment, God. I can't talk to you right now. I'm really upset. I just need... I need some space. <laughs> yeah. And I would drive home, and I wouldn't pray. I wouldn't do anything, but I would drive into my garage. And in those 10 minutes of just being alone and thinking, by the time I would get home, I would go, okay, God, now I need to talk to you. I just, need to, I just needed some time to get myself together. But he understands us. He understands where we're at. There was someone uh, who mentored me, and he, he talked about, uh, he, he kind of had the opposite where his dad, whenever he did anything wrong, his dad would get real steamed up. So you had to oh. wait a while before you went to him. Yes. And he said it was a, a big change in his prayer life when he realized God doesn't have that cooling off period. And I, I don't right. have to wait right. a little while after my sin to, to go and find him. I get, yes. I, I, you know, it's kind of the inverse of right. a, a little bit of what you right. were talking about. Now, I, I called uh, the study a book, but as as I've gone through it, I haven't made it all the way through, but uh, it's really more of a workbook. It, right. It's, you're not just uh, no. writing a book, but you're, I would call it a guided study. Right. You're, you're presenting verses and then question marks, right. uh, which I really like that format because I think it's versatile. I think that your book could be used as a devotional. You could mm -hmm. use it if you're having a group Bible study mm -hmm. uh, to get people you know, in, involved in the word word and uh, asking good questions. What made you decide kind of on, on that type of format? Well, first, because that's kind of the format I love to write is mm -hmm. the Bible study format. Um, that's where my love for writing comes. And But I don't want to write uh, Bible studies that do all the writing and telling you what to do and telling you, I don't want people to sit down and read this and feel like they're reading a book like that's telling them everything. Yeah. I want them to experience prayer. Yeah. And so by asking questions and making people think about some of the those difficult issues about prayer, mm -hmm. um, and I've had people even, you know, respond or text me or email me as they're going through it out of, you know, not here in Memphis but other places yeah. and saying, wow, I'm sitting here just focused on this one question, and it's really making me think about what his word says. That's my desire. Yeah. How can I guide you to think about and really wrestle with what the scripture says, but then also experience it? So it's really meant, I love to write in such a way that I'm guiding you through the word of God, mm -hmm. but I'm not telling you what the word of God 
is saying, I want you to figure out what does God mean by that? I think it's really important to train people through a process and not just give them conclusions. Right. Because a lot of times, if you're just giving conclusions and not working on the process by which people are uh, learning to read and understand scripture, um, you know, there's, you know, it's like mathematics. Uh, Mm -hmm. If you, if you have the right answer, but the wrong process, you're going to be in trouble later on down the road. Right. Um, For people who write curriculum and do things like that, one of the things I feel like you're really skilled at is coming up with good questions. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, uh, Mm -hmm. I've seen people give bad questions in classes and other other places. Are there categories of questions or ways you think of questions um, that help as you're preparing a Bible study? If somebody Mm -hmm. was preparing a Bible study and said, hey, Cricket, Mm -hmm. uh, how how do I come up with good questions? What advice would you give that person? Well, there's different kinds of questions that you can use. If, like in when I'm writing the study for the women, I will do some close-ended questions like, mm-hmm. what did Paul say? What are the three things that Paul said we need to do? Those yeah. are easy, straightforward. They're observation questions. But they don't facilitate good discussion because yeah. if you ask that question in your small group— what are the three things Paul says? Well, then everybody kind of has their head down because nobody wants to say the obvious. Well, he said this, this, and this. Or they don't want to be wrong. (laughs) Right, they don't want to be wrong. But what I like to do is use those open-ended questions that Mm -hmm. don't have necessarily a straightforward answer. And there are times that I will ask questions that even with my small groups here, and in the leaders group, I'll I'll throw out the question from the study, and one person will say, well, you know, I think this is... I think this is it. And then somebody else will say, well, I thought of this. And there can be different perspectives, uh, not necessarily on theology, but just on what are some practical applications. Yeah. But I like, I think you, you, you get the richest discussion when you use open-ended questions where it's not just a one-word answer, mm-hmm. a one-sentence answer, but it really facilitates. You know, you say something and then they'll go, but how do you do that? Yeah, I mean, we're supposed to do it, but what does that look like in yep. my life? So those are the kind of questions. And even when I write, I try to do some of those observation just yeah. for those you've, people. You've got to know what it is right. in order to react with it. And uh, and then what do you think it means? What do you yep. think God meant when he said that? What does that look like? So then I try to throw in application questions of, okay, we've talked about what he said. What does it mean? But now, what does it mean for me? So how are we going to implement that in our lives? And so those are the types of questions that I use when I write these studies. And then I just think in small groups, and when I lead a small group, I like those open-ended questions. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll summarize those really close-ended questions mm-hmm. and say, well, Paul said we need to do this, You'll this, have this. them work through that on their own, yes. and then you'll then, kind of review it. And then you'll open it up to the, you know. To the more open-ended questions. Because the open-ended questions are where you really get the rich discussion. I'm part of an online Bible study now with some military spouses across the country uh, that that are doing this. And they'll kind of write down their thoughts. And I love reading all the different perspectives of some of these open-ended questions. And sometimes they'll say, I don't really know what that means. Is it this? Is it that? But see, that's what I love because they're wrestling with the scripture. Mm-hmm. And that's where it changes your life as you get involved with what does this mean for me? Yeah. 
you know, one of the ways I think of questions that I was thinking about as you, as you were talking is connection and those observational questions, mm -hmm. they connect the person to the text. Right. Then I think you have uh, in your book some what, what I call synthetic questions, which mm -hmm. how does this passage connect with other passages yes. in, in the Bible? And that's kind of a a slow uh, building a theology right. uh, type, type questions. And then what you said are the open-ended life questions. Of right. How does this passage and this, you know, theological concept connect with my life in the, in the here and the now? What, what do right. I do about it? So those are kind of three categories as I'm uh, thinking. And I wanted to bring up the synthetic because there's several questions I noticed. It's like, okay, you know, Matthew says this and Philippians right. says this, you know, you know, how are they similar? How are they different? And I, mean, I think it's, I think it's important to be able to correlate to say, okay, this isn't just an isolated passage. Mm -hmm. This is throughout scripture. So yeah. I like to have that. You're not cherry deep. picking. Right. <laughs> it's like, okay, this is a principle that we see in other places in Scripture. Yeah. Now, you've had kind of a, changing gears a little bit. Yes. You've had kind of an interesting uh, journey in ministry. Mm -hmm. um, but before we get to that, uh, when did you come to the Lord? I came to the Lord when I was nine years old. Mm -hmm. uh, grew up in a Christian home. I always yeah. knew that Jesus had died on the cross. Where'd you when, grow up? Plain Dealing, Louisiana. Plain Dealing, Is Louisiana. It, have you ever now, heard of it? I, 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 to be plain, no. Um, <laughs> so funny. Now, have... Is that in Cajun country, or were you in Catholic territory? Is this this was up north by up Shreveport, north. Okay. almost by Arkansas, and okay. uh, it's very close to the Arkansas state line. Very small town, a thousand people, if you included dogs, cats, other <laughs> other critters, cattle. <laughs> uh, but it was about a thousand, twelve hundred people. Okay. Very small town. Grew up in a, a Christian home. Heard the gospel. My mom used to say that I started going to church. Um, nine months before I was born because mom and dad were always involved. And then when I was nine years old, I remember one Sunday, uh, I asked my pastor if he would preach a sermon about Jesus and what he did on the cross. I just wanted to hear how he explained it. He did, and that day, I asked Jesus to be my Savior. So that's how it started. I was baptized that day, and I grew all through junior high and high school until... I went to college, and then I took a little wayward detour during college. And Where'd you go? I went to LSU, Fighting Tigers. Very wayward, very wayward. <laughs> it was the party school of the South at that time, and mm. probably still is, and I didn't know another Christian. I didn't um, have any Christian fellowship, and I just got pulled into the party scene for my first two and a half years, and then a just do a series of things. I got involved with Campus Crusade and had a girl disciple me my junior year now, and my senior it, year. Tell me, tell me a little bit about those. I'm always interested in kind of transition points. Mm -hmm. So you get to LSU and kind of what drew you into the party area away from your roots? Was that something you were kind of looking for or was it something that just kind of happened, maybe shocked you a little bit that you got involved with in it? It was because I wanted to be accepted, and I was not looking for it. I wanted to find some Christians to continue mm -hmm. to grow with, but when I got there, there wasn't anybody I knew. I didn't know a single person, and everybody on my dorm, they were partying. So on a Friday night, I remember sitting in my room by myself, and everybody else was across the hall in a room partying. Yep. And I remember thinking, 
well, this is no fun. <laughs> and I want yeah. to be accepted. I want to fit in. So I guess I'm going to have to do what they do. And I walked over, knocked on the door, and said, can I join you? And that was the beginning. It wasn't because I wanted to. But then once I started, you know, you kind of get pulled kind into it. Stop, yeah. yeah. But that's how I just, my need for acceptance, my need for fitting in. And it wasn't until I met some Christians that my life began to change. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so you're going to LSU, partying a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, Was it kind of, you know, the frog in hot water where where things just gradually got worse? You you know, your spiritual life kind of, your partying increased, spiritual life kind of decreased, or was it kind of a snap? thing where it just kind of transitioned real quick? It just sort of gradually got worse and worse and worse. And I remember my junior year, I knew something was wrong, but I didn't know what to do about it. And Mm -hmm. a friend... So from freshman to junior year, year, you're living this this hedonistic lifestyle. And then the first semester of my junior year, the end of that first semester, uh, somebody... A friend had set me up with a—it wasn't a blind date because I knew the guy. He was yeah. in one of my classes. but And I thought, well, yeah, I'd like to go out with him. And the day when he came to pick me up, right as he was coming, my friend just happened to casually mention, oh, by the way, John's a Christian, and he's probably going to try to share witness to you on this date. <laughs> and I, my response was— you got to be kidding. You hooked me up with a Christian. I do not want anything to do with it. Mm-hmm. We weren't even out of the parking lot. And John said, you know, my name means God is love. And I thought, <laughs> here we go. But you know what? That was a turning point that night because John shared with me how he had just come to Christ a year ago. Yeah. And I'm listening to him. And I'm looking at this guy going, I just don't get it. You're a Christian. I'm a Christian. Why are you so excited about your relationship with him? Yeah. And I'm not. And that was the beginning. He invited me to go hear Josh McDowell. Mm-hmm. I did. I signed a little card, said I needed to talk to somebody. And that's when this girl with Campus Crusade came to meet with me. Yeah. And I realized I'm in trouble. I, I have gotten off the path. I'm leading my life. Was there anything that was said or discussed or, or pointed to that, May, that, that made that revelation apparent to you? You mean uh, when Bonnie talked to me or no, when, you, the, when, when you, I was with John? When you said, my life isn't where it should be, that, oh, that kind of moment. It was listening to John and seeing the vibrancy mm-hmm. in his life and his love for the Lord and how alive. Yeah. He wasn't somebody, he wasn't walking around like the sad. I mean, this was a very alive young guy. And then... He had he took me over to the fraternity house and we met with some other Christians, mm-hmm. um, and I thought, now this is what I was looking for was the yeah. Christian other Christians who are alive and they're not ashamed of the gospel, mm. they're not trying to fit in, they're wanting to love the Lord and that's what impacted me was seeing yeah. how much their lives were just alive and vibrant and mine was not. Yeah, you're filling it with a lot of activity, but- right there was still an emptiness there. Right. And I didn't know what to do to get to where they were. And that's when Bonnie kind of walked me through it and said, well, I have no doubt you're a believer from mm-hmm. talking to you, but you are sitting on the throne of your life and you're running it. Yeah. And you're not allowing the Holy Spirit to work in you. And I thought, I don't even know. What do you mean? I had no <laughs> idea of how 
that whole, how the Holy yeah. Spirit worked in us or lived in us. So like growing up in the church, you kind of, you, you know, learned all the grammar and, uh, right. you know, rules of things, but didn't necessarily, um, you, you know, weren't discipled, I guess. Didn't, I wasn't. Didn't have any, you, you probably didn't have a lot of the tools for building your own spiritual life and maintaining it. All I knew was read God's word, pray, but nobody ever really went through any of the basic follow-up that we try to do with the new believer mm-hmm. of how, how do you know you're a Christian? You know, how yeah. do you know you're forgiven? How do you, what is the Holy Spirit's ministry in your life? And I was thinking, I had no idea the Holy Spirit lived inside of me. I don't yeah. know why that <laughs> ever. But once Bonnie explained it to me and I thought, I, I can't live the Christian life, but he can through me. And it yeah. just changed my life. And I mean, it was a abrupt turn. Yeah. Once I turned everything over to the Lord. What were your friends' reactions to that after seeing you party freshman through junior beginning of junior year? It was a shock. I remember going to my Monday morning class. That Sunday night, I'd gone out with Bonnie to a campus crusade meeting, and I told her, Bonnie, I need to clean my life up first. Hmm. Then I'll ask him to take control of my life. And she looked at me and said, Cricket, if you wait until you clean your life up, it's never going to happen. Yeah. You need to get off the throne, turn it over to him, let him be Lord, let him work. So I did. That Sunday night, I went home, and I got on my knees and said, God, here's my life. You do yeah. with it what you want. Change me. I can't do it. The next morning, I went to my 745 class, sat with my friends, my party friends that I always did, and I, one of the girls said, hey, what would you do this weekend? And before I knew it, I said, I turned my life over to Jesus Christ, (laughs) and then I stopped and I looked down at my heart, and I thought, you really are in me, working. I can't believe I just said that to my (laughs) non-Christian friends. So that was how it just, I realized this is, it was dramatic for me. Mm -hmm. It was, And they were like, it's just a phase. You'll go through it, and you'll be fine. You'll be back. I never did. Yeah. Never went back. Uh, you know, another thing I, I, I like to talk about, and it's just come up naturally, and now I'm going to try and be more in, intentional about discussing it um, with people, is a, a lot of times, you know, when, when people come to Christ and when they really understand what grace is, those mm-hmm. can oftentimes be, sometimes there's a same moment, sometimes they're a different moments, but I was just curious for you, um, was there any period, was there any time when you just really realized, hey, this, this is what grace is. This is what saves me. You know, I think I understood that as a little girl, that it was grace. I knew that it wasn't works. I think his grace became just more precious to me. Mm-hmm. As I realized my, because I really wasn't that bad when I was a nine-year-old. But as a junior in college, I think I learned the preciousness of his grace after seeing what I had done those two and a half years turning away from him Mm -hmm. and then realizing that he was embracing me with his full arms that, let me run your life here, come to me. And that, so I think that was a, the first time. You probably time. didn't feel as sinful previously, so no. then his salvation wasn't as precious to you. Right, but then realizing that you still love me, even though I turned my back on you, mm-hmm. even though I said I did not want 
you know, to be seen as a Christian, you, you never, you're embracing me, Lord. That means I can't even fathom that kind of grace. Mm. And so that's when it really became so special. And I realized... Contrasting his faithfulness with your own yeah, personal faithlessness. Yes. Yeah. Mm, that's great. Now, um, what, were, what was your degree in LSU? Medical technology. Medical technology. Now, uh, you're saved through Campus Crusade. Did mm-hmm. you start getting involved with them, doing some stuff? Okay. I did. I was discipled by Campus Crusade staff my junior year. Bonnie discipled me. She moved away to get married yeah. that summer. And then that senior year, another girl discipled me, and I was involved with the leadership of Campus Crusade. Mm-hmm. And then after I graduated from college, I knew I wanted to go into ministry and okay. do what Bonnie had done with me and these other girls. And so I went on staff with Crusade uh, four months after I graduated okay. from LSU. Uh, tell me about that period of ministry. Did you, did you enjoy it? Did, was it energizing, life-giving? What all, what all did you do in that? The best uh, 10 years of my life, I think, oh, wow. was those 10 years on Crusade staff. The first six years I was on campus ministry. and mm-hmm. At LSU or somewhere no, else? No, I was at Louisiana Tech three years okay. and then at Western Kentucky three years. Okay. And my second year, the, they ended up putting me in leadership over the women's ministry, and it, I did not want because I said, I am not ready. I've only been on staff one year. Please do not make me do this. <laughs> throw you in the deep end. But they threw me in the deep end, but yeah. it, it made me really cling to the Lord more. But those were great years as God stretched me, and then I began to feel a calling to go overseas. Mm-hmm. And I went to East Asia for four years, and then while I was in East Asia— I and I was basically just kind of studying the language of a country and uh, just building friendships. And as God would give us opportunity to talk about Him, we would, and we yeah. began to see God work in great ways. I began to look for what are some ways that I can stay in East Asia and work, and met a cardiac surgeon who was looking to put together a cardiac team to go back to East Asia. Because you're saying East Asia because it's not a it's, country that's open right. to direct missional activity. Right. So, yeah. um, so you had to have, find an, a valid reason to right. be in country. I mean, I can only study the language so many years. <laughs> yeah. And I was fluent by the time I, I left. But um, God opened up this door with uh, supposedly, I thought, this door for a cardiac team and came back to the States, left Crusade staff, moved mm-hmm. to Houston, and went to school to be a perfusionist. Do you know what a perfusionist is, Seth? I did because I had previous conversations for you, but uh, for those who haven't talked to you previously, what's a perfusionist? A perfusionist runs the heart-lung machine during open-heart surgery. And those were the— You've just always been interested in the transformation of the heart, right? I guess so. <laughs> it's like somebody said, well, now I'm still working on hearts, but just the spiritual side of hearts instead yeah, of the physical. The, le- the less temporary part of them. Yes. Um, and so I spent 18 years working in heart surgery, still involved in ministry in my church, wherever yeah. I was. But What was your— invo- um, was there a different dynamics coming from crew to, um, you know, work, working in Sunday schools or being a part of a church primarily? It was so hard. It was when I came back to the what States. What made it harder? 
because in I, your opinion. I no longer had that family that I was part of. I mean, I moved back to the States, moved to Houston, didn't really know anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, but I began to get involved, taught Sunday school with a, another couple that we just had a heart for um, some Asian uh, scholars who had come here to study, and yeah. we began to kind of teach them the basics of the Christian life. And um, But... When you're on crusade staff, you feel like you're part of a family, and you, you you're all you're doing is not you know, even a team, a family. You're a family, yeah. And I just was lonely at first, and then I moved to Dallas, and just in my church there, my singles pastor, Todd Wagner, had just pulled me aside one day and said, "Hey, would you be interested in coming on part time uh, as the minister to associate minister to single women?" Now, what prompted the change from Dal- from Houston to Dallas? Well, in Houston, I was an instructor. I was okay. teaching perfusion students. Okay. And that can be a little stressful when they're about to do something and you're thinking, no, 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 don't do that. And so I thought, I just want to— Don't wanna, kill this person. I just want—well, I wasn't going to say that on, <laughs> on air. But, you know, you. I just thought, okay, I've taught for I don't know how many years, yeah. four or five years— I was ready to do it myself, and I always wanted to go to Dallas. Mm -hmm. So a job opened. I went to Dallas, and that's where I began to get involved in my church and worked part-time while I was still working at the hospital, working with these singles in this one of the largest singles ministry. I mean, we had like a 1,000 singles. There's just tons—when I was in Dallas, there just seemed like there were tons and tons of singles around there. There are. I don't know why. It's a lot of young urban professionals. It is. It was a wonderful place for me. Uh, And— so I worked with Todd in the singles ministry for several years and loved it. And that's when I began to feel like this is what I feel like I'm just meant to do, but I was still working in the hospital. And then gradually I hit my 50th birthday, mm. and I remember thinking, I do not want to spend the last half of my life working in a hospital. Yeah. I, I want to spend it with all my time focused on him. Kind of a... You said you got into the profusion to open up opportunities in East oh, yes. Asia. Were you able to take missions trips over there, or did that kind of fall through? Or I went. Well, it, we were. It, the original intent was that we would all move over there and mm-hmm. do heart surgery. Yeah. But by the time I finished school, that plan had totally dissolved okay. because things had changed over there. The hospitals weren't really equipped for somebody mm. to do heart surgery that yeah. much, and so it never happened. And I remember thinking, I am in a profession that I feel trapped in. I don't even love what I'm doing. And yet here I am because I thought it was a means to an end and now Mm -hmm. it's the end and I don't like the end. Yeah. (laughs) So, I I mean, I really only got into it because I thought it would be a means for me to live in East Asia and work as a tent maker, but it just never, it never worked out. So I felt trapped. And that's why when I hit my 50th birthday, I thought, God, what do I do? I want to go back into full-time ministry. How do I get there? And that's when some mentors led me into going to seminary. Okay. Um, before, you, before you talk about you know seminary and the ministry after that, what was it that made you feel like you were trapped in that vocation and couldn't really get out? Well, it was something I didn't love doing. It, yeah. it drained me. I mean, it was not something that... I was good at it. Don't yeah. get me wrong. I didn't kill a patient that I know of. I mean, I was very <laughs> yeah. conscientious. I was very... You could do the work. I could do the work, and I could do it well. And yeah. 
yet it wasn't giving me life. It was draining me. It wasn't something that I felt like, God, this is what I'm meant to be doing, yeah. you know, for the rest of my life. Yeah. That's why I felt trapped. I so felt were like you, were, you, were you in it for about 20 or so years? 18 years. 18 years. So it, during those 18 years, did you feel that way the whole time, part of the time, or just kind of well, gradually the, increasing? It increased. The beginning, I was able to go over on some short-term trips yeah. and do surgery over mm-hmm. in East Asia. And that kind of felt good. But then as I realized that it's not going to ever transpire, mm-hmm. and the reason I felt trapped was that here I had a job that paid the bills. Where, what am I going to do? I can't just I don't quit. Know, I don't know a lot about profusionist, but my guess is it's better money than ministry. Uh, <laughs> yes, I would They're say they're the type was. of people who pay for ministry to occur. <laughs> I remember telling my surgeons on the day I graduated from seminary it was my last day at work, saying I'm probably the only person in the world who went to graduate school to get a graduate degree so I could take a job and take a pay cut. Yeah, earn less money. I think there's some people getting out of ministry probably to go into the medical (laughs) field. Um, So then you kind of felt stuck, and you said some mentors came to you and said, hey, um, you you told them you you felt stuck, and their advice was you need to go to seminary. What was your reaction to that, or was that how it happened? Well, I I went, I talked to some of the women at my church who were like the women's director and Mm -hmm. some other women that were just mentors in my life, and I said, I feel like God wants me to go back into women's, uh, or into ministry, full-time ministry. I just don't know, how do I get a job in ministry? And they said, you got to go to seminary. And I went, but I've been on staff with Crusade (laughs) for 10 years. Do I have to go to seminary? And they went, pretty much now you do. And I fought it, said I'm not going. You thought you had enough experience and knowledge. I've had Bible teaching. I've had all this. I've had experience. I'm not doing it. I fought it. I fought it. And finally God, you know, said apply. So I applied for seminary. I went to the orientation like a cat that you're trying to get into a cat carrier to take, you know, with all my my feet and hands, like, (laughs) I'm going, but God, I'm going to show you when I go, this is not for me. I'm just going to go. I'm going through the actions, but I'm not going to follow through. I went to the orientation, and I met some of the professors. Sue Edwards was one of them. And I remember leaving that day going, God, this is where I need to be. Was there anything in particular in meeting those professors that made you realize that? I just wanted to spend time under their teaching. I wanted to learn. I saw how much they cared about helping people develop ministry. Mm -hmm. And I thought, that's what I need. I need somebody to help guide me toward ministry. And what do I want to do? And just hearing them and meeting them and talking to them and thinking, I need to be around them. Mm-hmm. So I just left there that day and said, God, I'm ready to write the check. Oh, that's a pretty fast turnaround. So from the you know starting point of going in with that type of attitude to your graduation, um, looking or, or looking back now, what what would you say to yourself if you know past you came up and said, I, I don't need this. I, I, you know, I know enough. I know it all already. What would you, what would you tell yourself? I would, you know, when I graduated from seminary, my response was, it's not how much I know now. 
mm-hmm. what I realized is how much I didn't know. Yeah. And even though I thought I was arrogant, I just thought <laughs> I've had all the training. I mean, yeah. I was just I was arrogant. I thought I didn't need it. And God knew I did. And even when I graduated, like I said, the thing that hit me was, God, there is so much I don't know. And I've just finished grad seminary and I still don't know stuff. Seminary is a very humbling and humiliating experience. You know that. You've been you've been <laughs> the same one. Yeah, especially uh, the languages. Those were very hum- humbling oh, see, I, for me. I avoided the languages. I, yeah. I respect you for doing them. <laughs> well, the, I, I tell people the main advantage I had in taking the languages is uh, not as much using them, although there's you know, occasions where that's really, really helpful. But the main advantage is to know when somebody else is misusing and abusing the language. Because mm-hmm. I, I, I yes. think, you know, there's sometimes and somebody can say, well, the Greek means this or this means that. And, mm-hmm. and if somebody you know doesn't, doesn't have that, yeah. then they're just dependent on that person's expertise right. or opinion, whether or not right. they know what they're talking about. Right. So that that's where it's been mainly helpful. There's there's a couple times where it's like, what does this word mean? Or what is the, what's mm-hmm. going on with this mm-hmm. construction and things like that? But usually translations are helpful enough to cover most of the bases. They're rare occasions right. where that helps. Um, so then you, you graduated from seminary. That's in uh, quit your lucrative medical I position <laughs> to, to, to go do something, uh, and now for something very different. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What, uh, what was your job application process? Where, what, where'd you look? Where'd you end up? I actually interviewed at several places in Dallas. I wanted mm-hmm. to stay in Dallas. Yeah. Everybody that graduates from Dallas Seminary wants to stay in Dallas. Yeah. There's so many DTS grads there. You know, they're probably bumping into each other all over yes. the place. And, um, I remember Joy Baker saying, we need our grads to move out into the world. And I kept applying for jobs, and like I said, I would interview, and I would end up like in the top two finalists. And God kept saying no, and I was devastated. And I remember crying one day to my women's director and saying, I don't know why God won't give me a job here. (laughs) Everybody else I'm with has got a job. (laughs) Well, um, Vicki Kraft, who was the women's director at the time in – or, or actually a retired women's director, Vicki had been asked to come up here to First Evan yeah. by Howard Clark to come and help the women think through and give them vision for a women's ministry. And she came up and met with them, and then she came back, and I said, well, how was your trip? And she said, it was great. By the way, I turned in your resume to <laughs> the church. Yeah. And I said, but Vicki, I'm not— you said you didn't think that was the right position for me because she told me that before yeah. she left. But she said, well, I think I helped them understand the vision mm. of women's ministry, and I gave them your resume. And then yep. I went through a few phone calls, came up, met with them. Yeah. And I realized when I met the staff and the women here that, okay, I think I could see myself here. And little with fear and trembling, yeah. I left my job and my friends and church in Dallas and moved to Memphis. Mm. And I've been here now for going on my 15th year. Yeah. In ministry, um, I'm not an expert in women's ministry. <laughs> what, what do you think the biggest challenges in women's ministry are? I think trying to come up with something that appeals to all ages yeah. and stages. Because you've got the young women... Uh, some who are single, some who are married with young kids, some who have high school kids. 
those who are empty nesters all the way up to, you know, grandparents yeah. uh, in their later years in life and trying to come up with things that it doesn't matter what age or stage you're in. Mm-hmm. This will, you can relate to this. Yeah. So that's the biggest challenge. And, and I, the other thing I've learned is that I can't please everybody. And is that a t- big temptation for you? It used, it would have been, I will say that's one of the things that I think working in the hospital helped me realize that I had to toughen up and mm. be able to take, you know, criticism. Yeah. Um, would you mainly get that from other doctor, uh, uh, doctors? Surgeons. Surgeons, yeah. You know, when it's stressful, sometimes they can really they'll just start. Yeah, they'll take it out on everybody in the operating room. Yeah. The wonderful men outside of the operating room, but <laughs> sometimes it just can get stressful. Yeah. And it made me really toughen up. And so when I got here, I realized that I wanted to please him more Mm -hmm. than anybody else. And that was the only way I could live with myself is there's no way I'm going to please everybody in this church. And so I had to to say, God, what do you want? And I've had to defend that to people when they say, why did you do away with that? Why aren't we doing this anymore? Because I feel like that is not what is best for this ministry and and I feel like that's what God is leading me to do and I know that at the end of the day God I feel like I've done what you've asked me to do and but that's the challenge is pleasing people and coming up with something that is for everybody and you know there's still things that we do that I'm sure there's people that feel like that's not for me Mm -hmm. but the word of God is for everybody and that's why the Bible study is the core of our ministry yeah as you've been in ministry, well, the, the title of the podcast is Surviving Ministry. And mm-hmm. the reason why I give that is, I think, partially to just to help people navigate because ministry is difficult. Mm-hmm. And then also, I think sometimes we come in with these grand ambitions <laughs> to, min- to ministry and they get, you know, uh, knocked around or tossed about, and then uh, you know I've seen a lot of people leave ministry, not make it into ministry, who are planning to, mm-hmm. and things like that. But just for the the people who are in it, who are, who are in the grind, what have been you know some of the difficult situations you've been through, and then how did you get th- how did you get through those difficult situations? Uh, if there was you know a period in ministry that was really trying or or difficult. Um, how did you manage it? How did you mm-hmm. deal with that? I would say the hardest part was probably at the very beginning um, when I wanted to make some changes and there was those that did not want to make some of those changes. Like, why would you move the Christmas at, dinner? At our church, change is a four-letter word. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and it's like, I, I even had one lady say she was so mad when I moved the Christmas dinner from the fellowship hall to the gym so that we could open it up for more outreach, say, you don't have a clue what you're doing. You are running this ministry. Mm-hmm. And I... How, how far into ministry was that? This is probably the second year. Second year, okay. And I remember sitting in my office and shutting the door and kind of crying and going, God, this is really hard because people don't believe in me. And it was only a handful of people, although yeah. now... They have completely turned around and they've talked yeah. to me about it and said, "You know what? I'm that. I'm sorry. I said that. That that is not. We just needed to be pushed, yeah. and we didn't like to be pushed. 
And again, it goes back to who am I trying to please? Mm -hmm. And I had to keep that in mind. That's what helped get me through it was, Lord, is this what you want? Because if it's what you want, that's all that really matters, even though my heart hurts that these people are saying these things about. The other thing that I think, um, well, and there was some resistance to change and that's gotten better where over the years it's gotten a little bit more challenging is that the more you are involved in the ministry, the more responsibilities get put on you. Yeah. And then you feel like you're pulled in all these different directions and you're no longer just doing one ministry, you're doing multiple ministries. And then you feel a little uh, disjointed. Mm -hmm. And again, that's where I envy people with focus in ministry. <laughs> I know. Well, you know. I don't know exactly. if anybody has any. I don't think so as much anymore. I think that's kind of universal in churches that you do yeah. multiple things, but it's hard because you're spread so thin. Mm-hmm. When I um, took this job, I remember emailing the alumni placement officer at Dallas Seminary at the time. His name was Bob. I remember emailing him saying, yeah. "I took the job at." First Ivan and I am so excited, but at the same time, Bob, I'm scared to death. Mm. I'm scared I'm going to fail. Yeah. I'm scared they're not going to like me. What if I can't do it? And I'll never forget Bob's response. He said, being scared to death is a great place to be because that will keep you on your knees the first few years of your ministry. Mm. And if you're wise... You'll stay in that position the rest of your life. Mm. I have spent so much time on my knees, literally on my knees in this ministry when I've been discouraged, when I've wanted to quit, when I've said, God, I can't do it. Yeah. I think that's what keeps you going. That's what keeps you surviving is you keep going back to him on your knees and you say, God, I'm. it's like we talked about at the beginning of this podcast. Yeah. God, I am... I am desperate for you right now. I need you. I can't do this. And then he walks us through it and strengthens us in and, and that time. And that's what's kept me going yeah. is my time with him. Yeah. Uh, what have been some of the most enjoyable times of, of ministry for you? What really, you know, fires you up, gets you motivated, gets you going? I get excited when I see lives changing, when I yeah. see people growing and with some of our, you know, Bible studies, hearing women share how God's working in their lives or seeing seeing momentum in the ministry, seeing where it's growing. And not just numbers, because it's not about the numbers. It's about lives being changed. But I love it when people get excited about what's going on in the ministry and they can't wait to tell people, other people, hey, you need to come be part of this. You know, this is what God is doing. What excites me is when I see God working and when I stop seeing God working, then that's probably time that I need to step away. Yeah, It's time for somebody else to step in. Mm -hmm. So, but that's what excites me. I love seeing women um, grow in their relationship with the Lord. I love to see women stepping out using their gifts. That's one of the things I love the most is helping people use their gifts and seeing them grow in those areas of giftedness and heart. One of the things I see in your ministry is that you do a good job of creating 
I, I guess, church or institutional structure in order to facilitate that. Mm -hmm. um, how do you think about organizing a women's ministry in order to grow and develop people into their in their own ministries? Well, I think you've got to get to know your women. So you yeah. kind of give people the opportunity to serve or you ask them, what would you like to do? What are your areas that you're good at? Well, why don't we give you a let, let's let's give you an opportunity mm -hmm. to do this for a short term and yeah. see how you do. Um, I think for me, in case their perceptions are a little right, off. right. Yeah. You don't want to say, "Hey, would you be my such and such leader for the next three years?" You know, <laughs> you want to try them out in small little yeah. place. And I think one of the best things um, that we can do, and I did it when I came here, was I built an advisory team of women. Mm -hmm of all ages, from my 20s all the way up to what one point I had a 90-year-old on my team. Yeah. And hearing from them, as they even say, I think so-and-so is gifted in this. Mm -hmm. And being able to really see, and even on that advisory team, hearing their hearts and then thinking, you know what, I think you would be really good at this. Yeah. But I like to sit down and talk it through with Are them. Are there, like, kind of categories of ministry that you think about? Like, there's teaching, ministry, other, you teaching, know, what are the areas? administrative, like, are you good at teaching? Are you good as a facilitator of a small group? Mm -hmm. Like, I look for people who would be good. Are you good at just that caring ministry, mm -hmm. hospitality? Or do you love to just make people feel at home? Yeah. Okay, well, here's some areas that we can use you um, and allow you to use your gifts there's some that are just so good with administration that yeah. they it's just so easy for them. They organize, they they get the 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 things done that I have trouble with and they just make it run like clockwork. So administrative, hospitality, care. Having seen my office, do you think I have the administrative gift? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> but I don't either. So Yeah. I, th I think it's also, I think, you know, you just mentioned that you don't either. I think it's important to kind of know your mm -hmm. own competencies mm -hmm. in order that you, you can either work real hard to overcome them or be able to say, okay, I'm, I'm strong in this area. If I have a number two or an assistant, right. they need to be strong in this right. area to make up for, you know, my own lack of ability or things like that. I think some of the best advice I received uh, from a women's director in Dallas before I came here was, Surround yourself with people who play to your, who help fill in your weaknesses. Yeah. So where I'm strong, okay, I don't need to necessarily have an assistant that is really strong where yeah. I am. But if I need somebody to help me with administration, I need to surround myself with those people who can mm -hmm. help me with that. And that was probably the best advice I ever received. One of the big breakthroughs for me was when I I was trying to delegate these roles in a, in a ministry and was just having trouble getting people to show up for music or other, mm -hmm. you know, other areas. Mm -hmm. I'm not musically competent either, so I had to have people do music in this worship service and things like that. And then a breakthrough moment for me was when I realized I could delegate delegating. If there's somebody yes. better at delegating than me, okay, I'll put them in charge of, you know, recruiting the people yeah. for these different roles in the, in the, in the service, and that was... Uh, that that was a big, uh, you know, you know, aha moment mm -hmm. for me. It's like I know delegating is important. Well, I'm having trouble in this area delegating. Right. There are other areas where I was doing okay delegating, but right. Um, so that you know, that was a big aha moment for me. Right. Um, a couple other other questions that come to mind just from other conversations we've had. Um, 
in your ministry, you've you've been single the whole time, mm-hmm. and that's something, you know, that's that's unique. What do you think the what do you think the challenges of it are? Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think the disadvantages of it are? How, how do you look at it yourself mm-hmm. now from from this perspective in in terms of you know singleness in ministry? It's something Paul and uh, other right. people talk about. Uh, it, it's something both Paul and, and Jesus model, but it's not right. necessarily something you see a ton in ministry. Right. Um, I remember when I was in Dallas, because uh, I did not want to be single yeah. all my life, and I remember when I was working with the singles in Dallas, my singles pastor and I were meeting one day, and he's just out of the blue said, Cricket, I don't think God's ever going to let you get married. And I looked at him. Thanks, buddy. And I went... <laughs> That is not something a single woman wants to hear. Yeah. And he's poor guy I, for that. I matter. said, "Why are you saying that?" And he said, "Because you're so effective as a single. Mm. I do not think God is going to take that away from you." Well, and I said, "Well, I hope you're wrong because that is not what I want in my yeah. life." But you know what? I have always gone back to that day and realized that I do believe God calls some of us to be totally his. Mm-hmm. to be able to be undistracted by, I mean, you're a new dad of little twin boys, and like you said, you can't they're work very, at home. They're, yeah, they're very, very distracting. <laughs> and so, you know, for me, I guess God just said, I want all of you for me and for my ministry. And that's what Todd was basically saying, is that you're doing such a good job as a single, I don't think he's going to take that away. Mm-hmm. And like I said, I didn't like that. Yeah. But I've seen where I'm able to do things in the ministry as a single woman. And I've got some other single friends in Dallas who are women's directors like yeah. me that are single. And we've, we've talked about it and saying God has, for whatever reason, called us to serve him totally undivided with anything else, you know. And so I think it, it helps in ministry because I can pretty much give all myself to him. The negative side of it is that when you go home, you don't have distractions to pull you away from it. And so mm-hmm. you can almost work too much because, well, I don't I don't have to take care of kids. I don't mm-hmm. have to take care of a husband. Yeah. I can just spend all my time doing ministry. So sometimes you have to force yourself to say, okay, I have time to do ministry, to work on this, but let me just pull away and have some me time. Yeah. So that's where I have to keep that balance. It's not something I wanted um, – but over the last, I don't know, since I've been here in Memphis, I begin to yeah. realize that, God, I think this is exactly what you've called me to, and I am content with it. I don't know how to tell you when God has called you to it or not. I mean, it wasn't <laughs> like I wanted it, and I went for years and years and years thinking, okay, where's my man? Yeah. But I do see where there's advantages because I'm, I'm able to really give my whole heart to the ministry. And yeah, undivided attention. Undivided attention, like Paul talked about. Yeah. But that's not necessarily the design. What's hardest is when people look at you and think, what's wrong with you? Because you know they're <laughs> thinking that. Yeah. And some of their comments. And it's like, there's nothing wrong with me. Yeah. I, it's just, this is it's where actually a God higher, is higher calling that, that presented in Scripture. Right. And it's like, it, it, yeah, it's kind of weird because I think... There's some ways in even some churches hiring policies and things like that. And I saw this when I was first applying for jobs mm-hmm. right out of seminary, mm-hmm. not not being married at the time. And it was like positions were like, 
we want you to be married. Right. And I was like, so Paul and Jesus would be right. disqualified for <laughs> right. this position. Um, and I've heard that too, especially for men. They they want pastors to be married. And I'm, yeah. th- I'm like, well. And I think there's a, um, or there was when I was there, there was a, um, a preaching prof at DTS. I, I never had him, but he was, you know, he, he was a little different than you. He wasn't one of those people that said, where it kind of happened and they gradually realized that he made an intentional decision. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm going to be single. Right. I know um, who you're talking about. Yeah. And he's from a, a different country right. as well. So, but I mean, I think. I think that might be one of those areas where our cultural influence is way heavier than the scriptural right. influence of, right. hey, you can be much more devoted to God. You can be, you right. know, you can have all these advantages if you're single, but people aren't out there thinking, hey, I should be single. That'll be great right. for my ministry. Right. You know, yeah, you don't are, think that. You're yeah. thinking, well, yeah, I want to be married. Because I never did grow up going, I'm going to be single. I'm going to give myself to the Lord. I was like, God, where's my husband? Mm -hmm. I mean, I want to serve you with somebody. I want to partner with somebody. But I I don't know why. You know, I can't wait to get to heaven and ask (laughs) the Lord why Uh, he chose this for me. But I know when I hear his response, I'll go, oh, that makes such good sense. I understand now. Well, and you, uh, I think also, you know, one of the things you mentioned in, in your experience at LSU, you, you know, they were pointing out, you know, you're on the throne of your life. Right. He's, he's not. Right. And I think a lot of times we're, we're willing to let the Lord be on the throne of our life so long as things are going our way. Right. Right. And uh, when things don't go our way, we're like, okay, now I'm going to take over. Now right. I'm going to be in, in, in charge right. of it. And I think... Uh, especially when romance or matters of the heart are involved, right? People tend to wander wander from that in, right. in those areas more often. But um, I can say I'm totally content with where yeah. God has me. But it, it was probably a process to get. Oh, to that it point. was. It wasn't like overnight. It was like, okay, <laughs> I'm good, God. It was more. There's of a no process. like one key inside. No. The, oh, now I got it. Yeah. No, it was a gradual getting there and going. You know what, Lord? He'd have to be a prince charming. To sweep me off my feet now for me to give up my single life. Yeah. Uh, if somebody was going into ministry or going into women's ministry, if these are two different answers, uh, what advice would you give them? If you're going into ministry. Or thinking about going thinking into ministry. Thinking about going into ministry. I guess. Um, I think, one, you need to go in with the reality that it's not going to be easy. Yeah. Uh, Sometimes I think there's a mindset that it'll be so fun. I'll just go in and go have lunch with people and just have coffee with people. It's going to be fun. Mm -hmm. It's it's hard work, and you've got to be ready for it because if not, you're going to quickly end your ministry because you're going to just like, this is not what I was expecting. I think what Bob told me is probably the best advice, stay on your knees. But I think staying on my on your knees, making sure that you don't come in to the ministry thinking, I got this, I'm a seminary graduate, I've got the experience, God, I got this. Mm-hmm. You come in dependent and go, God, I need you. Yeah. Because I think that's what 
that desperate feeling I had of, I don't know what I'm doing. Because I've told the women at the beginning, after the beginning, I didn't know what I was doing. That's a good place to be. So I think, I think that's why, you know, prayer, which we, we've talked about, right. as well as scripture reading are so important, you know, because they're in a way means of dependence. Right. I'm, I'm dependent on God's word to inform and right. transform me. I'm dependent on prayer to bring my needs before him and for him to work on me through that as well. Right. I definitely, I think that dependence is key to a successful ministry. Actually, it goes against everything American, really. It does. I mean, you're supposed to be self-sufficient. Hey, I can do this. But in the ministry, I really believe that just that dependence and prayer, and I just read an article recently uh, on mm-hmm. that about that prayer is a key to successful ministry because it keeps, we're dependent on God and we're saying, God, I can't do it. So that would be advice. Uh, come in realizing that no matter how gifted you are or no matter how trained you are, yeah. you're still not sufficient to do it. You yeah. still have got to be dependent on him. And I think it's dangerous too. If somebody is more impressed with themselves than Christ and are in ministry, that's a recipe for disaster, really. And I think that's where a lot of, uh, well, not I won't say all of, but I think some of the major crises in even evangelical America have occurred, or people Mm -hmm. where the the personality is the attraction more than Christ. Right, right. And you you know you don't want it to be about you. You want it to be about him. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is always be thinking about building that legacy behind you of people yeah. that can you don't want to be the person that when you leave the ministry falls apart. Yeah. You want it to be a ministry that's healthy that if something happened to you today, people have been trained, they know the vision, they can carry that on. In a way I think about it, you almost want to be working yourself out of a job. You do. Because you're raising up leaders, you're raising up competent people. You can take care of things when you're not there. Right. And, and that's, it opens up other opportunities for you. And that was one thing I saw when I came into this position. I kind of looked at different ministries and different things that were under my area, and I kind of saw that if the ministry is really dependent upon the pastor, mm-hmm. whenever there's a turnover in that position, the ministry dies out. Mm-hmm. Anytime the ministry has strong lay leadership, it keeps on going right. after the pastor leaves. So right. one of the things I kind of intentionally did is there are some things that were previously pastoral that I tried to hand off and, and move into a more mm-hmm. lay-led ministry so that it'll hopefully be more sustainable in the long run mm-hmm. and, and not just peter out if you know you lo- whenever right. there's turnover. You don't want it to be dependent on you. Yeah. Well, looking forward... Uh, thinking about finishing well, mm-hmm. what is that? What is your vision for that, and how do you hope to pursue that? I just told the Lord last night, I just want to follow him and serve him until the day he takes me home, whatever that looks like. I know I won't be in women's ministry until that day unless yeah. he takes me home sooner than I'm thinking. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's more of, for me, it's that desire to, to do what he wants mm-hmm. and that willingness to God of whatever you want me to do is what I want to do. And I want what you want. And finishing well, I think about my mom who finished well at 98 years old. Mm. Um, she prayed. 
she was a prayer warrior those final years when yeah. she could no longer teach. She, I, I think the main thing for me of finishing well is, Lord, I want to please you and I want to obey you. And whatever you're asking me to do, I want to be totally surrendered. And that's mm-hmm. what my vision is, is don't let me get to the place that I say, okay, I'm doing it my way now. Yeah. Continued dependence till the end. Right. Um, one other thing I thought of, I was planning on ending on that question. It's such a good ending question. But I, I, there was one other thing I wanted to talk to you about real quick or real slow. It's up <laughs> to you. Um, you've been, you know, sometimes I, I, I talk about people's ministry in the church, but then also other ways they serve. You've mm-hmm. also been involved in uh, a lot of over, overseas ministry, mm-hmm. which you said originally was, you know, a major influence right. in your life. In what ways have you been involved in overseas ministry and even, you know, stateside ministry, um, not just in your the typical nine-to-five that you, right. you have here at the church? Well, no church works nine-to-five, but you know what Right, I mean. right. Well, I think uh, the overseas ministry is coming alongside women leaders mm-hmm. in other countries who don't have the resources that we have, and they're so hungry to be taught God's Word. Yeah. And so um, I have gone, taken a team, you know, usually twice a year to do two different places, and we have just taught Mm -hmm. a a book of the Bible or a topical series, depending on what they're looking for, and equipping them to take the Word. And, And it's so exciting when you hear them say, I am teaching this to a group in my village. Yeah. You know, and taking what they've learned and they're teaching it. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the things is being able to come alongside and equip nationals yeah. uh, to do the ministry. And and they're doing the ministry. We're just going, coming alongside and really encouraging them yeah. and giving supporting them a supporting resource. Yeah. Um, you know, also, and I mentioned this earlier, I've been involved in writing conferences and getting to know women mm-hmm. uh, even this last conference I was at, just encouraging other writers in their journey and trying How many to, books have you written now? Oh, I don't know. Well, published You've written books, a lot of studies. I've written a lot of studies. Published probably three. Okay. Um, but I've written a lot of Bible studies for the ministry. But coming alongside some of these women who uh, want to be published and, and just trying to encourage them to just keep their eyes on Jesus. And then at this last conference I was at, getting to know some of these military spouses, mm. wives of men who are serving in the military overseas, and yeah. and they're wanting to be used by God. And so really keeping up with that connection of encouraging them, doing this online Bible study, that wasn't my idea, one yeah. of the military spouses. How many people attend that? There's, I think, 14. It's a small group. Yeah. But it's 14 they're women. They're all over the world. They're all over, well, yeah. they're all over the U.S. The U.S., okay. And I feel like that is a small group of people, but 14 women on fire for the Lord, wow. Mm-hmm. What can they? What can you do through these women's lives, yeah. Lord? So I, I really see my role and what God has called me to is to encourage. I mean, I feel like that's my spiritual gift, exhortation. Yeah. How can I exhort you and spur you on to be what God made you to be? And yeah. that's what gives me the most joy in life. Yeah. For somebody looking to discover that, what advice would you give them? I would say try things uh, to see if how they feel when you do things. What mm-hmm. is it that brings you joy? 
What is it that just lightens up your life and you go, yes, this is what I was meant to do? Because when I am coming alongside, you know, a young woman or even an older woman, but a younger woman, and spurring them on or helping them develop, that's when I feel like, God, this is what you created me to do. Mm-hmm. So there's that satisfaction. There's that sense yeah. of, yes, this is it. This excites me. It doesn't feel like work. Yeah. This is really just, it energizes me. You could do it 10 You could do it all day. day yeah. yeah. So that's what I would say is find those things that you are really good at and that you thrive doing mm-hmm. instead of things that drain you. Now, to give people an accurate view and not a rose-colored view of ministry, um, like what would you say, what percentage of your time is doing that real high, like, (laughs) uh, you know, that energizing work you're talking about? Oh, wow. Well, I can tell you this. It is not all the time. I would say there's probably, oh, I don't know, maybe half the ministry is stuff that's not necessarily what I love doing. But I can do it, yeah. and probably fifty percent of my time is doing those things that I just really 15? love. Fifteen, fifty, oh, half and half. Man, I'm thinking you got you got some high percentages there. Is it? I, from my personal perspective, yeah, that's awesome. I don't know. I mean, I'm just thinking. I get to do a lot that I love doing, like yeah. teaching and writing the Bible studies, which is one of the things I'm thankful for. First of all, they've yeah. given me the time to write studies for my women. Yeah. Um, and then I get to teach, and then I get to equip teachers. So that is part of the job I love, discipling others, meeting with others, mm-hmm. helping them grow spiritually. Yeah. You know, that's probably 50% of my time. And then well, awesome. I have administration details. And I love coming meetings. alongside the women. Oh, yeah. yeah, the meetings. The meetings are not <laughs> my favorite thing. So that takes a good bit of your yeah. time. Yeah. But, and I um, think the larger the church, the more necessary those are right. and things like you that. You got to have them, but I'm, you know, it's not my favorite part of the day. Yeah. So. so. Well, uh, any last words that you would tell somebody in ministry? I would say keep your eyes on him and stay on your knees in prayer because that's the only way you're going to get through it. Only way to make it sustainable. Right. That's the only way you're going to survive ministry <laughs> is through prayer and just that constant dependence on him. Don't ever step out. When we step out in our own strength is when we're going to see failure. Yeah. And I think sometimes even in ministry, God calls us to failure. But you can handle it better if you're, if you're on, your knees. on your knees and your eyes on him. Right. And because you learn from the failures. I've seen failures in my own life in ministry, and yet that's where, God, you are using this to show me some things. So it's good. I think those are always a reminder that he's the Savior, he's the one doing the work, not us. Right. And it's okay for us to fail right. if we're allowing him to have his proper role right. and we're just his servants. Well, Cricket, thanks so much uh, for the interview. Uh, if you haven't, check out her book. Uh, give them the title of the book and where they can get it one more time. Uh, the name of the book is On Bended Knee, Praying Like Prophets, Warriors, and Kings, and you can purchase it at Moody, uh, their website, moodypublishers.com, or Amazon. I hope you'll pick up a copy and see what God wants to do in your life through prayer. Thanks so much, Cricket. Appreciate you being here. Thank you. 
If this podcast has been encouraging to you, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a line at survivingministrypodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, congratulations, you survived this podcast.